Well, it was exactly this time last year, the bank holiday in May, the second bank holiday in May, that I was in Rome with the Wimbledon Choral Society, which is a choir that I sing with. And we had a four-day trip to Rome. And on the Sunday morning, we did a three-hour walking tour around Rome. And so we started at the Colosseum and we went all around the, the temples and all those ruins that there are there. And at one point we got up to the Capitoline Hill. And the Capitoline Hill is, uh, there's some lovely buildings there that Michelangelo has uh, designed, had designed and has a beautiful square. And in the middle of the square is a fantastic statue of Marcus Aurelius sitting on his horse, which was another Michelangelo creation. And uh, as you walk around the hill, you get these wonderful views across the Colosseum on one side. And then if you go up onto the other side, there's this fantastic panoramic view. You've got the Vatican City, and then it spreads right across Rome, all the way across. uh, And it's a a fantastic place to look at the city. Uh, Inevitably, there's a cafe there as well. And uh, so you get this good view. But it was the Capitoline Hill that used to have... Uh, the Temple of Jupiter on it. That was the site of the Temple of Jupiter. Um, So if you go back to Paul's day, 2,000 or so years ago, uh, the Temple of Jupiter would have dominated that hill. And it was the place that uh, the Roman triumphal processions would have ended up. Now, every time there was a battle and the Roman army had gone out and had been victorious... On most occasions when they came back to Rome, they would hold a triumphal procession. And you have to think, I mean, these were spectacular events. And so you have to think a cross between Notting Hill Carnival and an FA Cup victory parade. There was colour, there was uh, music, there was sound, there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people lining the route. Everybody stopped working, everybody turned out for this. Uh, There was lots of energy about it and an enormous sense of victory. There was a a sort of sense of pageant about it as well. And it always took the same route. It started at a place called the Field of Mars, which is on the west side of the Tiber River. And they used to to gather there very early in the morning, uh, before dawn. All the people that were involved in the procession would gather there and get into order, ready to march or to walk through Rome. And they would take this this route, which would take them four kilometres through Rome, and eventually they would end up at the Capitoline Hill, uh, where the Temple of Jupiter stood. I want to try and paint a mental picture of this occasion. I want us to try and think how it would have looked and how it would have felt to be there on such an occasion around 2,000 years ago. So we're going to have to go back in our imaginations to that time, to Paul's time. The order of the procession may have varied slightly on occasions, but generally this is what would have happened. The magistrates and the senators, the bigwigs, would have been at the front of the procession. And they would have been followed by the trumpeters and the musicians. And then after them, you had all the captives led in chains. Some of them were destined for slavery. Some of them were going to be, end up in the Colosseum in the arena, uh, being torn apart by wild animals. Others would have been executed publicly. 
And then there was the spoils of war. There was the weaponry that they captured. There was the armor. There was the gold and the silver and the treasures. There were huge paintings on banners showing scenes of the battle so that the people could understand what the Roman troops had been doing. And then there would be floats with these 3D, enormous 3D uh, 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 representations of buildings in the cities that they had conquered so that people could understand how grand these buildings had been. And then after all that, the conquered king would come along with his family all dressed in black. And then ranks and ranks of Roman soldiers proudly marching their victorious march And then after them, eventually, the Roman general, the man who had led his troops to victory with his family, riding on a chariot with four white horses pulling the chariot. And he was dressed as the god Jupiter. And he would have had laurel leaves on his head. And everybody was focused on this general as the one who was victorious. And then after him, finally, there were lots and lots of white oxen that were being killed, that would be killed at the temple of Jupiter as they finally got to the Capitoline Hill. These oxen were sacrificed to the gods, and then everybody in Rome would have had the meat to eat. They would have had free drinks. It was a great celebration. Flowers were thrown onto the roads. Incense filled the air as they passed every temple uh, for the various gods as thanksgiving. And of course, eventually, there would have been the smell of the uh, sacrifices they got to the temple. Thousands of spectators waited. They watched, they read, they admired, they applauded all the variety of displays. It was bank holiday atmosphere. It was party time. Everybody had the day off and there was food and drink in abundance. That was the scene that forms the background to 2 Corinthians 2 verses 14 to 16, which we'll read in a few moments. We're in a series called Power in Weakness based on 2 Corinthians In the first couple of chapters, Paul is trying to explain why he had to change his plans and couldn't get to Corinth earlier. He is also defending his apostleship. He's saying, look, um, I know that there are these other teachers and sort of super apostles coming to Corinth and they're trying to persuade you that I'm not the real deal, but I am uh, an apostle. They're trying to persuade you that uh, I'm not very impressive, but I am a real apostle. They're wanting letters of recommendation so that they can take their messages onto other churches and get uh, money for preaching in other places, but we serve you for nothing. Uh, And we don't need a letter of recommendation because you are our letter of recommendation. So he's defending his apostleship And then he gets to verse 14 and he kind of just goes off at a tangent and he just can't help himself. He has to praise and worship the Lord Jesus in the middle of this argument about his apostleship. And if you read anything of Paul's writings, you see again and again he heads off at tangents and quite often it's like praise has just bubbled up out of him and he just can't help himself. 
It's as if he's been thinking about these Roman triumphal processions. He's been meditating on it, and uh, he suddenly thinks, I'll write about this a little bit. I'll write about the comparison between that and Christ's triumphal procession and the contrast, and he just couldn't, can't help himself. And so he writes these words. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. Can you smell the aroma? Can you smell the incense? That's the picture. It's vivid imagery. This procession would have been familiar to people in that time. Even if they hadn't been to Rome, they'd have probably seen similar processions or they'd have heard about the Roman triumphal processions. And so Paul is bringing parallels and contrasts between that event and what Jesus has done on the cross. For a triumphal procession to take place, it had to meet five conditions, five criteria that the Senate would agree on before they declared a triumphal procession. First of all, the battle had to be fought on foreign soil. And so Paul, I guess, is meditating on this and thinking, well, Jesus uh, was in heaven and he comes to the earth and he wins a victory on the earth, which in a way is a natural territory for Satan. It says in the book of Revelation that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Christ and of his God. And so uh, Paul is thinking, well, Jesus has won a victory on foreign soil. Secondly, the general who had won the victory had to have a certain rank. He couldn't be any old general. He had to have a certain social standing in Rome. And of course, Jesus has the highest rank that anybody could possibly have. And so he's contrasting in his thinking uh, the general to Jesus. Emperors, the Roman emperors, uh, delegated the responsibility for conquering other nations to the generals, but Jesus doesn't do that. He comes himself to win the victory. Thirdly, the victory had to be so decisive uh, so that the Roman army could actually come home. Christ's victory on the cross was so decisive that after he rose again, he ascended back to heaven. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has sat down. He's finished his work. The victory is assured. And so from the point of the cross onwards, there's never been any doubt about the outcome. Fourth criteria was that at least 5,000 foreign enemy troops had to be killed. Well, salvation is available to many more than 5,000 or 144,000, or any other figure you want to put on it. Salvation is available for millions and millions of people through all generations. There isn't a limit. And fifth criteria was territory had to be added to the Roman state. Well, of course, Christ comes and his kingdom continues to grow and grow and grow until he returns. And so the kingdom of God is always adding territory. So this Roman triumphal procession had similarities and it had contrasts. It was a pseudo-religious event where the oxen were sacrificed at the temple of Jupiter and they were offered to the gods in thanksgiving. 
incense was burnt in thanksgiving as well. The victorious Roman general was awarded almost deity-like status on this occasion. He wore the outfit of Jupiter, the god Jupiter. He had the laurel leaves on his head. His family were with him in the chariot, but often they also put a slave, one of his slaves next to him, who throughout the whole procession would say, Sir, you are but a man, to remind him that he was actually human. But on that occasion, he was given godlike status. He was uh, almost worshipped by the crowd. But of course, Jesus doesn't have godlike status just for a day. There isn't a temporary, divine uh, thing for Jesus. He's always been God and always will be God. And so again, I think Paul is, is just pondering these contrasts. The captives in this procession were destined for execution. They were destined for slavery or they were destined for hard labour. But in contrast, again, Christ's captives come with him and are given eternal life and freedom. This is a how much the more illustration. If a Roman general was afforded such honour following a victory in battle, how much more should Christ be seen as the one who continually leads us in triumphal procession? How much more should we honour him for what he has done? And so Paul says in verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So Paul is thinking of himself and his co-workers as people who are in this procession behind Jesus, preaching the gospel, reaching out to other people, very aware of his weakness as a captive, but confident that God will use him to reach people for Christ. He is rejoicing now that he is a slave of righteousness rather than a slave to sin. Uh, Righteousness comes with the benefits of holiness and eternal life rather than death. It's a theme he picks up in Romans 6 uh, a number of different times. Romans 6.18, for example, says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So Jesus has conquered sin and death and leads captives before him as his possessions. Believers now belong to him rather than being slaves to the world. We're captives of Christ, but instead of being executed and subjected to hard labour or slavery, we are given our freedom and we are given gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says that Christ uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. You know, smells aren't easily contained. We've just lit some incense sticks at the back of this room and it's now filled the room. How many of you have been on a train and you got on a train carriage and, and you sat down and then somebody's got on after you and they've got a box of Morley's chicken or KFC or something? How long does it take that smell to permeate through the carriage? Not very long. If you walk through a rose garden, uh, the, the scent, the incense, the fragrance fills everywhere, the, fills the air. How many of you have ever burnt the toast at home? Be honest. How long does it take that to go all the way through the house? A few minutes, if that. Smells just go everywhere. And Paul is saying, look, look we are the, the aroma of Christ. There, is, there should be no limits on where this message of the gospel goes. Uh, 
the fragrance has spread into every neighbourhood, into every community across the world. This is a wonderful picture of power in weakness. You know, we are Christ's captives. You can't get more weak than that. And yet, we share with him in uh, dispelling and spreading the aroma of Jesus to the rest of the world and back to God as well. So we share in his victory. We're caught up in his agenda of spreading the good news everywhere. The task of believers is to be God's instruments in advancing the gospel. It is through us, Paul is saying, that the gospel spreads everywhere. Our role is to be a channel for this fragrance uh, of the knowledge of him to keep going through the world. The knowledge of God then is depicted as a sweet-smelling perfume that permeates the world. He goes on in verse 15 to say, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. The scholar, Bible scholar Tom Wright says, The sense of smell was highly valued in the ancient world. The very mention of sweet-smelling knowledge in this passage could have awakened many different associations in the minds of an ancient reader. So in this context, we have the image of the Roman triumphal procession. Paul is thinking about the smell of the incense that were offered up to gods, the smell of the sacrifice at the end at the Temple of Jupiter. This processional route would have been filled with the sweet smell of success, which is a phrase we use today, isn't it? And one dictionary definition of the word aroma says it's a spice with a distinctive fragrance, an agreeable odour, persuasive quality or charm. So for the Roman people, for the the Gentiles, the non-Jews, they would have been uh, familiar with this picture of the procession. But for the Jewish readers and for the people who were of Jewish background, this would have conjured up another image in their minds because in the Old Testament of course uh, animals were sacrificed and then they were offered to God as burnt offerings and this smell that came up to God it was a sense of you know this was pleasing to God this was an aroma that would please the Lord so for example in Genesis 8 21 Noah builds an altar and uh, sacrifices animals and the smell was pleasing to God on that occasion Well, that was the Old Testament, but of course now in the New Testament there is no longer any need for animal sacrifice because Jesus has died on the cross. He is the perfect sacrifice and he's done away with any need for any more sacrifices forever. But in the New Testament, Paul talks about us being living sacrifices. In Romans 12, 1, for example, he urges us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your true and proper worship. So the idea of being sacrifices and offering spiritual sacrifices is associated with worship. In 1 Peter 2.5, Peter writes, you're like living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. When we come to worship, our worship is like that animal sacrifice, like the the sweet-smelling aroma. And so the way we live our lives 
should be like a sacrifice which pleases God, which brings this pleasant fragrance to the Lord. Here in verse 15, we find that the same aroma that brings joy to the victorious people brings dread and fear to the conquered enemy. So as part of that procession, you've got the conquered king all dressed in black and his family dressed in black. Well, as they go through the streets of Rome and they're smelling this incense, it's filling them with dread because they know that they will be sacrificed, that they will be executed, that their life will be cut short. Again, Tom Wright says, As God's triumphal procession makes its way through the world, following the victory of Jesus the Messiah over death and sin, people like Paul, who are in the procession, are wafting the smell of victory, the smell of triumph to people all around. To those who are setting their faces against the gospel, the same smell reminds them that the victory God won means victory over all the forces that oppose his healing rule of justice and peace. In other words, that those who oppose are signing their own death warrant. Occasionally it's good to look at other versions of the Bible and the message is one of those interpretations which brings the word alive so well on different occasions. And Eugene Peterson, who's uh, put that together, uh, interprets these verses in this way. He says, Through us, he brings the knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognised by those on the way to salvation, an aroma redolent with life. But those on the way to destruction treat us more like the stench from a rotting corpse. Very vivid language. Uh, I remember removing a dead rat from my daughter's bedroom once, and that was quite a stench. Uh, you know. But it's that kind of sense that if you are in Christ, that you, you're giving off this this fragrance, some people will love that. Some people will love the values that you have as a believer, but other people will hate them. Other people will say, I don't want anything to do with that kind, those kind of values. I don't want to live my life that way. And so to them, it's like a, a rotting corpse. So our lives should be a sweet aroma to God in two main ways. First of all, in our witness. In 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul talks about spreading the knowledge of God everywhere. So our, our words and our lifestyles need to bring a distinct flavour to the lives of those around us. Back in February, I did a three-day course, and uh, there were about 12 or 14 people on the course. And as part of the course, we had to do a 15-minute presentation. It was like a teaching uh, adult education type of thing. And uh, we all chose different subjects. And there was a lady in the, in the group. She was an Indian lady. She ran an old people's home, was uh, training uh, her staff in all those sorts of health and safety areas and that sort of thing. But she decided to do a presentation on Indian spices, the sort of spices she uses in cooking. And so she brought in uh, some of these spices for us to taste and to smell. And she talked about how she would use them in different dishes. Now, Indian food has a very strong flavour, very strong flavours, very distinct flavours. And it, it's like that, you know, some people love Indian food. 
Other people just hate Indian food. It's just so strong. They just hate it. It's going to be like that with us as believers. If you're a believer, you should bring a distinct flavor. You should bring a flavor which other people, you know, some people are going to love it and some people are going to hate it. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens. It's like Indian food, if you like. Because the spices enhance flavor. So when we come to Christ, when we are believers, we take on this new strong flavor. And people become aware that we're different from the rest of the world, that we have a different set of values. And so that should be distinctive in our everyday actions. We're filled with the grace of the Lord. We bring his presence. We change the atmosphere wherever we go. I used to play five-a-side football with some guys of a similar kind of age, um, and some of them used to bring their sons along, which was not really fair because the youngsters used to charge around everywhere like lunatics, and the older ones of us used to try and pace ourselves a bit. But there was one guy there who's uh, a real character, a guy called Alan, lapsed Catholic, and when I first started going there, he, um, he swore a lot, but he used the, um, or misused the name of Jesus frequently, often using the name of Christ in the wrong way. And I'd never said anything to him at all, but I think after a few weeks he, he realised that I was a pastor or I was a Christian, and you know, he just suddenly stopped and never did that again. And it's almost as if when you step in, as a, as a believer, when you step into a new situation, you bring something of the atmosphere of Christ into that situation. You change the atmosphere and the circumstances. Sometimes the atmosphere may be one of despair. And as believers, we need to bring hope into that situation. It may be an atmosphere of anger that we're encountering. And as believers, we can bring a sense of peace and calmness into that situation. It may be that we're in, we find ourselves in an, an atmosphere of sorrow, and then we can bring comfort in that atmosphere. It is up to us to bring the aroma of Christ wherever we find ourselves. And sometimes smells can stimulate a desire that perhaps we, we hadn't realised was there. So you can be walking down the high street and you can walk past the coffee shop and smell the coffee and think, oh, I desperately need a coffee, and walk in and buy one. Because it generates, it creates a need that you didn't even know you, you want, you had. We were up in Birmingham a few weeks ago with my son and his family and they live about two minutes' walk away from Cabaret's. And so we went for a walk around, around the factory, around the outside there, and you get this strong chocolate smell in the air all the time. My wife grew up in Birmingham, and she said she, when she was at school, she would go out in the playground every break, and you could uh, smell the chocolate floating across Birmingham. And uh, we went round there, there's a, there's a, a shop there, they sell lots of chocolate, uh, discounted prices... Uh, the rest of them had to stop me buying armfuls of chocolate, you know, because the smell of it, just you think, oh, I must have some chocolate. It generates a desire. And it's the same with us. It's the same with us. We, we should have an impact on people around us as this aroma of Christ hangs around our lives and we bring a different flavor and other people suddenly realize, oh, there's something about these people that I would like. Uh, they, we can create desire in other people. I had a friend at college, Tim, who uh, he became a Christian for that very reason. He hung around some Christian believers and he saw something in their lives that he didn't have in his own life. 
and he wanted to know what this flavor, this aroma was. And so he got to know them and he got to know what their gospel message was and became a Christian. So our lives should be a pleasing aroma to God in the way we share our faith, the way we live our lives, the way we communicate about the gospel. And secondly, our lives should be a sweet aroma of God in our worship. As worshippers, we minister like priests to God. It says in 1 Peter 2.5 about being spiritual sacrifices. You know, incense is made by cutting and breaking herbs. And then they get crushed into a powder. And then you add water and you, you make a kind of clay. And then the clay gets rolled into sticks or into cones. And then eventually those are lit to create the sweet-smelling aroma. So the process that eventually produces this sweet aroma involves cutting, breaking, crushing and burning. There will be times when many of us are in the middle of trials and real challenges and real problems and disappointments, maybe even some form of persecution. We'll feel cut up, we'll feel broken, we'll feel crushed and burned by life's experiences. But it is in those times when we choose to worship, despite the fact that everything is going wrong and falling apart for us, when we come before God and we worship him and we don't turn our back on him, that God says, that is a sweet-smelling aroma to me, a spiritual sacrifice that I'm pleased with. Sometimes we have to dig deep to come back to worship. But that's the very moment that our lives are beautiful to God. This is the sweet smell of victory. We need to carry this exquisite fragrance of Jesus to our places of work, in our, into our neighbourhoods, to the school gate, to the shops, when we're in traffic jams, when we're on crowded tr- tube trains. The aroma of Christ should permeate every part of our lives. One lady said that she used to work in a hospital And there was one particular doctor that would do his rounds, and after he'd done his rounds, he would uh, light his pipe and walk through the corridors back to his office. And the rest of the staff said it wasn't uncommon to see people walking down the corridors, lifting their noses up and just taking a, a breath and smiling, because they knew which doctor had just walked down the corridor. And our lives should be something like that every day. This is an image of the way we should be as Christians, carrying the exquisite fragrance of Jesus so that anyone following us would desire to inhale this sweet aroma of the Saviour. Let's pray.